I'll just open us up by, by praying for us tonight. Um, Lord, those are, are great words for us to, to recite and, and to sing, that we would surrender all to you. And I just pray that that would sink from our mouths into our minds and right down into our hearts as we look to love and to, and to serve you, Lord, to, to surrender all things to you, that, and that we may find true joy, true satisfaction, that you would truly be all that we need. In Christ's name, amen. Um, tonight we'll, we'll continue to look at the book of Mark. Um, we'll be in chapter 10, starting in verse 17. Um, we kind of see in this section of Mark, Jesus continues to, to teach his disciples and to show them the nature and the, and the character of the kingdom of God. So, um, and right here in this passage, we'll begin with verse 17 and go through verse 31. And I'll, and I'll read that for us as we start. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God, God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at, this, at his words. But Jesus said to them, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter in the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished. And he said to him, and they said to him, then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, see, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses, brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. Hmm. There was this missionary. He left his home. He gave up his culture. He gave up his language. He buried three of his family members in one year. He was robbed for almost everything he had, but except send the guy to jail because of the harsh penal code, he writes him a letter. In the midst of all this, um, I guess he's in China by, China, by the way, and in the midst of all this, there's the, the Boxers' Rebellion. In the missionary agency he's working with, they lose 58 of their people, and about 21 of their children. And in the midst of that, he, he takes no reparations. 
He takes no action to defend them against that. But yet, his whole goal in that is to, is to reach the people of this country and to, and to see that they know Christ. And, that, and towards the end of his life, he makes this statement. He says, I never made a sacrifice. Wouldn't that be kind of odd or, or strange? Maybe for some of us, kind of romantic, that kind of, that kind of thing where I never sacrificed anything. And like, can you imagine that? Like Everything you've been through, every agonizing decision you've made, Everything that you've given up, whether voluntarily or involuntarily, like, of course we were like, that's a sacrifice. We've given this up. We've let this thing go of value that we've, we've treasured for so long. And could you make that kind of statement at the end of your life? You said, I've never sacrificed anything. But, but what does he mean by this? What, is his, what does his life say about this? And kind of interpreting life, it seemed to say, it means living a life of, of following Jesus brings a certain fullness and a certain satisfaction that comes by no other means. It doesn't come by staying in the comfort of your own home or your own country, for, in his case. It only comes by, by following Christ and knowing his will and, and treasuring just the fullness and the joy that, that comes in him. So as we look at this rich young ruler tonight, we, we see a, a certain things about him. Not all of these are bad things. Not all of these are good things, but we definitely, we definitely see here him being sincere. As you kind of look in, in verse 17, it says, And as Jesus was setting out on his journey, a man ran up to him and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So Jesus is on his way, and this, this guy just kind of runs along and, and kneels before him. Um, from the different, from the Gospels, we kind of see that he's, a, he's wealthy, he's rich, he's a ruler, so he runs out and kneels before Jesus, this, this teacher. And, and that to be kind of a, a strange thing for him to do during that time, being that being his kind of position of authority, him being a ruler, him having that status in society. But we see him running out before Jesus. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So we see a sincerity there. Him not just thinking about himself, but, but what's to come. Him thinking about eternal life. Wouldn't that be kind of a, a noble thing for him to earnestly to be seeking about what will happen in his life as, as it comes to an end? And what if we kind of all thought that way, like, if I knew what was to happen when I die, like, would that change how I live now? And I think he was kind of in that same mode here. He was wondering, like, if I die, what is going to happen to me? So he's sincere. He's earnest. He's anxious to know what, where his life is headed. And Jesus says to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And just considering this, Jesus starts off, why do you call me good? Only God is good. So he, he gets the mind of this rich young ruler working. He gets him to to kind of see how he's, how he's defining good. Because either right here he's going to 
he's going to say, well, if only God is good, then, then, who is this good teach, then who is the good teacher I'm talking to? Is he defining Jesus as being good and in that defining him, making him to be God? Well, his view of goodness is merely from a human standpoint where he's subjectively comparing himself to others around him and, def- and coming up with his own moral standard where he's kind of saying, well, according to these things, he's good. He teaches people. I'm good. I'm rich. I'm a ruler. People respect me. So how's, how's he defining good here? And of course, he, he doesn't take the, the Peter approach. He doesn't run up and say, you are the Christ. We don't see that here because we see how the rest of the passage goes. We see it doesn't go in that direction. It, it takes another turn because his response is, teacher, all these I've kept from my youth. Hmm, what does he mean by this? He's kept all these things from his youth. He's never stolen. He's never lied. He's always honored his father and mother. He's never murdered. He's never bore false witness. Not in any aspect. Between the law and the Talmud, he's been able to keep himself holy and pure and undefiled in every way. The holiest guy I know. (laughs) So... What are we seeing here in his response? Could it be self-righteousness? Is he truly that, that genuine, that he's never sinned, that he's never done anything wrong in his entire life? And as we get to his response, we're going to see that, that this is all self-deception. He's blinding himself in, and thinking he's obtained some type of perfection in this life that that he can kind of hang his head on. And we can see that, that we're all born into sin, that not outwardly we tend to do these things a lot, but in our minds and in our hearts, we can, we can see us, ourselves, hating our brother, and, and Jesus calls that murder. And can we somehow undo this nature? No. And yet, we see this guy here, he's, he's externalized the law that was given to him by saying, what must I do? In all, his, in all his life, these are just things that he's been doing. He's kind of building his checklist up. He's doing all these things, and, he, and he's considering himself good. And we kind of see that every wrong thought, every misplaced emotion, Every thoughtless action judges us guilty before God. God in his holiness is unique and perfect and moral in every way, and we can't measure up to that standard. He can't even tolerate a single sin. As we, kind of, as we see where sin kind of derived from, we see Adam, we see Eve, we see this one sin separates man from God completely. So he's in his holiness, unique and and perfect and set apart from us. He's not ordinary. He's not casual in any way, shape, or form. He's he's not us. He's holy. He's perfect. And all of us have been tainted in some way. Um, And a quote from from J.C. Ryle says, so long as we think we can keep the law, 
Christ profits us nothing. And we're going to see this in, in the life of this rich young ruler. So in his, in his ignorance, he's searching for this other, this other tool, this other thing that he can kind of add to his arsenal of, of his to-do list where he said, I've done this and this and this, and these things have, have caused me to gain eternal life. But it all just boils down to a trap. It's, it's become a trap for him because he doesn't, he's not seeing where, where those things are leading him. And we kind of go on, and it says, Jesus looking at him, loved him, and said to him, you lack one thing. Go sell all you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Come, follow me. So we see here, he's kept all these things, yet, yet he's lacking. And, and I think when Jesus tells him he's lacking, he's probably not thinking in the same way that, that Jesus is thinking. Because in his self-righteous state, he's, he's thinking that he's done all that he can do. He just kind of needs an extra piece of that. He just needs kind of a, a bonus to, to boost him along a little bit. So Jesus kind of tells him, or, or better yet, reveals where, where this rich young ruler's heart, heart is at. And we see him go away. It says... Disheartened by this saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. He loved money better than he loved his soul. He loved his possessions more than he loved himself. It's not much the fact that he had money. The fact is that he trusted in it. He took comfort in it. He made it security for himself. It was the one thing that Jesus wanted him to give up that he, he couldn't live without. Isn't this kind of the, the story that we all face? A little raise here, a raise there. Maybe pay the lottery a little bit and get a little extra money and, and that will bring comfort into our lives. We can take all the trips that we were thinking about taking. We can pay off all the debt that we have and, and that will somehow kind of put us in a position where we, where we no longer need anything. And does God kind of fall under that category? In our comfort, do we, do we really need him? Do we really seek him out? Is he really the one that we're trusting in and trusting to provide for us in that when we have all that we need right here? So what do we do to, to keep our good intentions good? How do, we, how do we fend against this? I think it's just knowing that, that Christ is Lord and just knowing that he's Lord over all that we have, whether it's our lives, our, our time, our talents and gifts, our money, not just 10% of those things, but all of it. He calls us to be good stewards in the way we handle our time, the way we handle our money, and all these things. So, just with that, I love your soul better than you love your possessions. And 
And next, Jesus, Jesus responds to him. It doesn't just kind of end there. He just doesn't, doesn't walk away disheartened. It says, Jesus looking at him loved him. Hmm. So this guy, he, he's overwhelmed by this demand that Jesus makes on his life. He, he's about to go away disheartened, and, and Jesus looks at him, loves him, and, and tells him what he needs to hear. And you may think this is, this is kind of unloving. He's, he's putting too high a demand on this man. Or we may think it's pretty reasonable. This guy's pretty wealthy. He can afford to give it away. He's in the 1%. He can do a little bit more for society, pay some extra taxes or something. <laughs> and then we get to, then we continue to, to look at verse 21. Maybe it's unreasonable because we look at this verse and if he has to do this, then I have to do this too. Jesus is commanding him to do this. He's also commanding me to give up everything I have. Don't we kind of think that way? We'll end up selling all our possessions, moving to some deserted island where we read the Bible to cannibals or something like that. But Jesus looks at him and he loved him. He had his best benefit in mind. He, he wanted to see this, this man prosper. Not in the way that the rich young ruler wanted himself to prosper, but in a different way. He sees this guy caught up in his self-righteousness and the comfort that, that his wealth kind of his brings to him. And we see that's why he experiences this anguish. He's holding this thing so tightly that he just can't let it go. And yet Jesus knows this already. He, he's God. <laughs> he knows that this man is coming to him. We, we kind of see that in his, in his dialogue with the Syrophoenician woman. Um, well, the Samaritan woman at, at the well, we, we, kinda, we see that there, him him knowing and, and poking and prodding and, and asking these questions. Well, yet here he, he still extends, extends love to this guy, even though his affections are, are elsewhere. Not only does he love him, he promises him treasure. And he says, and you will have treasure in heaven. Come and follow me. And I guess this isn't the, the treasure he wanted. And we see in this, this statement that, that Jesus is offer, offering him this treasure, this treasure of eternal life that he's so desperately looking for. But yet, he, he's so, so tied to his earthly possessions that he's, so, he's unwilling to let this go. And his idol in his heart just dethrones God and it draws his affections away from this good teacher who, who he's running to for, for this great answer that he thinks is going to impact his whole eternity. And we kind of respond to our, our, our idolatrous actions in, in the same way. 
God couldn't possibly want me to get rid of that. It's just so near and dear to my heart that I really can't let it go. And then we kind of justify when people try to hold us accountable. God knows my heart. I mean, indeed he does, but, but do you know your heart? Are you deceived like this rich young ruler? And have you confronted the, the things in your heart that, that pull you away from Christ? And going back a few chapters to, to Mark chapter 4. He's, he's telling the parable of the sower here. And, and I definitely think it, it applies, applies to the rich young ruler here when in verses 18 and 19 he says, And others are sown on, among thorns. There are those who, wear, who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires of other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. So this unfruitfulness leaves him kind of, kind of useless. He, he goes away, and we never know if this ever comes back and he ever thinks about it again, but he walks away disheartened and sorrowful. You see Jesus here lovingly offering truth and this great gift that should be satisfying this young rich ruler's soul, but yet he couldn't give himself fully to Jesus because, because of these possessions. And we see here Jesus' verdict on the love of money. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And his disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through an avenue than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? Through this account, Jesus just continues to the preach that the demands of the kingdom of God are so, so radically different than our expectations. And the bar is set high. Um, if the gate was broad, then we all would enter. If everyone could follow their own path to God, then, then why, would, why would he be so strict here as, as to say, that it's harder for a rich to enter the kingdom of God than the camel to pass through the eye of a needle, the biggest animal they ever seen in Palestine at this time. Not only was he saying that it was a difficult puzzle that could be sometime, someday eventually figured out, this was the impossibility. And the same holds true for the rich who, who merely trust in their riches, who are merely satisfied by the riches that they have. That difficulty turns into an impossibility at this point. And we're quick to, to point out the explicitly bad things that, that we see in our own lives and, and around us. Murdering, stealing, lying, and all of these things. But what about our idolatrous attitude towards good things? 
the good things in our lives that, that we desire and, and hope for? What is, our, what is our attitude like towards those things? Are we merely trusting God because he's going to get us those things, or are those things just kind of icing on the cake? Are they, are they extra? Are we truly satisfied in Christ? And as we continue to move through this passage, we see here, we see him here with his disciples. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, with man it is impossible, but with God for all things are possible. You can almost hear them gasp here. Because as, as he says this twice, they were amazed. They were astonished. Hmm. If this guy comes to him, somehow has a, a leg up on them on the highway to heaven, then what are their chances? How, how can they get there? And this is right, a lot, right, a, right in line with first century Jewish thinking. That wealth and prosperity, those things were signs of, of blessing from God. That people that had these things were, were blessed. They, were, they had favor on their lives. And, and somehow that, that status showed that, that God delighted in them in a sense. So these, these bunch of fishermen were together. And they were wondering... If this guy who's, who's followed the law, who has this status, who appears to be blessed by God, can't enter the kingdom, then what about us? How can we be saved? And we see here the disciples having to unlearn some of the things they grew up with in their society and in their culture. They had to unlearn the things that they were, they were hearing about salvation. They had to unlearn the things that, that they were learning about deliverance from, from their sin and, and what they would look like. Their good works were be, becoming useless. Their ethnicity was pretty much awash and high social standard, high social standing was, was becoming meaningless as they begin, as they continue to, to hear and to learn and to, and to follow Jesus' teaching. But surely there can be something they can cling to. But Jesus, Jesus continues to, to tear all this down. He continues to, to remove all of, all of these other things and, and deconstruct everything that, that their worldview kind of, kind of brought together for them. So who can be saved? And he looked at them and said, with man it is impossible, but with God for all things are possible with God. So, in this, the, the rich young ruler sheds light on what we should hold dear to our hearts. He, he gives us this picture, kind of contrasting what comes in the passage before, where the disciples are kind of holding the little kids off from coming, and like, Jesus is like, no, the, bring, let them come to me. But we see the rich young ruler coming here, he seems to have access. He comes, he kneels. 
And Jesus in this shows us that the rich who who value their who value their treasure, who value their possessions, they're more far off than, than those little children that you've you've seen before. And we see here the, the gospel isn't gained, it's it's received. And this is just a, a valuable lesson right here that by faith alone, through grace alone, in Christ alone, that's where our salvation comes from. That's, that's where we're saved. He says, with, with man it is impossible, but with God all things are possible. And yet in that he, he makes a promise to them as well. We see we see Peter here, maybe a little, a little antsy after this. He sees this, this rich young ruler coming. He, he's observing what's going on. He's, he's seeing, he's, he's hearing. He's, and Peter says, see, we have left everything to follow you. And Jesus said, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mothers or fathers or children or lands for the sake, for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold. Now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. And in this, we see Jesus kind of going back to what he was saying to the, the rich young ruler. Come and follow me. He's, prom- he's, pr- he's promising them these things as, as they follow him. The rich young ruler leaves disheartened, and we see the disciples here. They're, they're still persevering. They're following Christ. And Peter interjects like, we've left everything. He seems to be searching for an answer from Jesus to, to give him some hope. Like, this guy, he, he's not leaving anything behind, but, but we've left everything. And for the present, he says, they'll receive a hundredfold. And we don't see them. We don't see the disciples going back to their homes. We don't, we don't see them obtaining great, great wealth throughout the, the, the history that is to unfold after this. They're martyred for their faith. So, so how, is, how is this true? And Christ gives us such a, a marvelous family of brothers and sisters, of, of mothers and brothers. As, we, as, we, as you kind of think about Mark 3, verse, verse 35, where he says, Whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and my sister and mother. So we see, so we see here manifested in our day the church, the body of Christ knitted together all of us being many members, being this family that he's, that he's talking about here. But yet he also says persecutions. That may turn some of us off. <laughs> but he says persecution will come, come with these things. And I just kind of think about 
the book of John, right before his, his high priestly prayer. And at the end of chapter 16, he says, I've said these things to you, that in me you may have peace, and in the world, in the world you will have tribulation. So he, he continues to, to promise them, them suffering, persecution, knowing what's in, in store for them once, once he leaves. And suffering can, can be an ugly thing. It can break the, the strongest of people that we know. In Tim Kell's book, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering, he says, while the worldviews lead us to sit in the midst of life's joys, foreseeing the coming sorrows, Christianity empowers its people to sit in the midst of the world's sorrows, tasting the joy to come. And at the end of the day, persecution, it makes us more like Christ. We see the, 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 the apostles in jail. We read Paul's letters where he's, where he's always talking about this identifying with Christ and his sufferings. And as we read Hebrews, the joy set before him that came with suffering. So persecution is, is just another thing that, that we as Christians have to, to face and to embrace as, as we walk this, this journey. And in the age to come, he promises eternal life. And Keller also says in this book, but resurrection is not just consolation. It is restoration. We get back all the love, the loved ones, the goods, the beauties of this life, but an unimaginable degrees of glory and joy and strength. Can you imagine that? Unimaginable glory. And Paul talks about this weight of glory that is to come. That whatever we lose here, whatever we gain here, in the life to come, there is, there's just so much more waiting for us. My friends, this is eternal life. Jesus promises abundance only found in him. That he's not a means to joy, he's not a means to happiness, he's not a means to great possessions he's the end of all those things joy is Christ is joy he is happiness he's everything that we are looking for and jumping back to verse 17 we see there we see here Christ is setting out on a journey. In all three of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we see this story in the same place in all of them. He's setting out on this journey with his disciples, and, and they're heading to Jerusalem. And, and we all know what happens there. It's kind of a, a final showdown of, showdown of sorts. And we see this rich young ruler kind of meeting him on the way to that. 
And Christ is, is giving him a glimpse of that in the things that he's telling them and the instructions that he's giving them. As he's heading to the cross at this point, and he's, and he's teaching his disciples and preparing them for, for that very thing to come. And he's continuing to, to disciple them and, and teach them and give them this hope for, for the rough road that is to come and, and about the nature and the character of the kingdom of God, that they will have something to hope in. And even going back to chapter 8, he, he continues to, he, he starts to instruct them this way. And in verse 34, he says, If anybody will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For th- what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Wealth and possessions are fleeting. Marriage and family, those things aren't ultimate. The idea here is to to take hold of Christ daily. Treasure him above everything, because he's worth more than all those things. And I just want to leave you with with one thought from from 2 Corinthians 8-9. And though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you might, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Um, I'll pray for us. Lord, that we will give you all our affections, that we would lose the illusion of power that we think we have over our lives and all the hard work that we put in to to claim the things that you've blessed us with that that we would we would come to you to surrender ourselves and, and our lives to give back all the things that you've given us and that we would treasure you as, as the giver rather than the gifts. That with our whole hearts we would seek to love you and to know you and to follow you. And it's in your name that I pray. Amen.